Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour podcast and your host today is Carlo Reffold. We are joined by Greg Vandergast, starting as one of the most notorious hackers of the 1990s, having been involved in the largest mass hack of the time and setting off an international incident after hacking into a nuclear weapon facility. Greg has over two decades of technical management and leadership experience in information security. A frequent speaker about bringing visibility, care and accountability to the information security industry and breaking out of today's reactive status quo. He is an expert in building efficient and effective infosec organizations by enabling leadership, addressing root causes, and harnessing human potential. Hope you enjoy. Greg, it's so good to have you join me. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So normally we start by asking people about their background and when they heard about cyber, but I feel like for you that's been quite well covered and we should maybe just skip to 2020. Okay. <laughs> Who's this guy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, just, do you want to tell us a little bit about you? Uh, just, just Google it. Uh, saw, saw the movie Hackers when I was 15 or 16. Thought that looked cool. Angelina Jolie was in it. Nuclear weapons labs, DOD, FBI, consulting, uh, CISOE type stuff. There you go. Yeah, that covers it. Yeah. <laughs> so... Now, we've just been talking about how 2020, uh, your job searching, and this is a funny time to be searching for a job. So tell me how that's going. Um, well, I'm still unemployed. So I'm, I'm recently unemployed because I took, uh, I took a job to, uh, to, as a director of information security for a rather large, well, an increasingly rapidly growing company here that, that just IPO'd. Unfortunately, uh, for some rather odd reasons, it, it fell through. So I find myself back on the job market. Uh, and I came to the UK about two years ago and uh, found a job actually with Capita very quickly, uh, heading up the security for TV licensing. Um, and that went fairly well. Uh, in fact, it went so well that the BBC decided I was of strategic importance, uh, that I was clearing up so many issues uh, that for the first time, I think they told me in the first time in 10 years, they actually had someone that was honest with them and had a strategy. Uh, and they actually went to the CISO at the time and requested that, which they, they just had lost all faith in them. And they requested that I be made to report above her um, to directly to the managing director. Uh, and this was about three and a half months in. And yeah, that week I got a P45, which is a pink slip for you Americans, uh, because CISO didn't, didn't like that. Uh, and that was not my first experience where the kind of security status quo felt threatened by a different approach that seemed to work and, and wanted me out of the picture. Um, after that, because I was kind of new to the UK, I, I spent nine months uh, trying to find a role. Uh, it was incredibly difficult. And you hear all this cybersecurity skills gap stuff, but uh, apparently not. And there's, there's other tremendous uh, people on the market right now. Um, one that comes to mind is... Uh, Mark Ward, who is here in the UK, kind of London area. And Mark Ward is uh, kind of an, an IT operations guy. He's extremely well-rounded and he's very security savvy. He has a keen interest in security and kind of wants to go that direction. He's already done security work. He can't even get 
uh, he was telling me this week, like he can't even get a job as a, as a SOC analyst because recruiters will tell him, well, you don't have the skills. I was like, well, because you haven't used a specific tool, but he understands all the underlying technologies uh, and many, many more that most SOC analysts have absolutely no clue about. And he's the kind of guy who, if you put him in a SOC analyst role, uh, will figure out a lot of your root causes and probably reduce your SOC's workload by 50%. But he doesn't tick the boxes. And, and this, I think, is the big issue uh, with the industry. Now, I've, I've managed to carve myself uh, a reputation now as someone who's uh, likes to engage, likes to dig, is very curious, likes to influence. Um, and I, I very much think that we need to address problems upstream um, because that's that's where it makes sense to me. And I've I've believed this because it's been apparent to me since I was you know, a 16-year-old teenage hacker. Like I, I had an extremely secure box. I went on, or home network, I went on IRC channels, internet relay ch channels, and antagonized the hell out of hackers to, to hack me. Uh, you know, with a direct dial-up connection. I had no firewall. I had no NAC. I had no home router. It was just my system was built properly, and that was security. Security now does none of that. Security is entirely upstream, very far away from where the root cause of the issues actually are. Um, and yet we're, we keep perpetuating this. It's fantastic for the security industry because it's an endless sales cycle. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And you see spending going up and up and up. And the only thing going faster than going up faster than security spending is the number of breaches, uh, which tells you how effective we are. Um, and that, that's kind of the marketplace that, that we've created for ourselves. And it's the kind of skill set that we're looking for. Um, and I mentioned earlier, um, I saw a presentation about the skills gap by ISC Squared, and they had this great slide that showed the the 20 most in-demand roles in cybersecurity, and they were all these responsive, far downstream, reactive, far downstream roles like you know SOC analysts and incident response analysts and, and uh, disaster recovery and that that kind of stuff. Uh, there was absolutely nothing in there about improving IT process or you know holistic program development or that kind of stuff. Um, and that's that's kind of where I'm at. And uh, the other thing, like uh, I just saw like a top ten security activities for 2020 by Gardner. Absolutely nothing proactive in there. Absolutely nothing. And that that's where the market's going. And I, I think the real skills gap that we have is is people that have a holistic vision, people that are curious. Uh, uh, we talk a lot about diversity, but uh, we do our damn best to indoctrinate the hell out of all these quote diverse newcomers uh, so that they think and work the exact same way as the old guard. Uh, so we're, we're killing off that, you know, we'd like to stand on that little pedestal of thought diversity and, and kind of celebrate and virtue signal ourselves, but we're actually killing that, the benefits of that diversity. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's the state of the market now, and it's quite, it's quite worrisome. Thoughts? <laughs> well, the skills gap is obviously very controversial, but I agree with you because I think there is a skills gap in certain roles. Security architects, instant response people, they're really hard to find. And anyone you anyone you hire, you're probably just taking out another job and, and kind of just creating another role somewhere else. But when you come to a CISO level or when you come to the entry level where maybe we do need some change, I'm not sure that that gap is there. In fact, I think there's some great people that are really struggling to break into the industry or to get roles at the right salary and I think it's the skills gap isn't equal across the whole market it's it's not but I'm actually gonna argue your point you're right there is absolute demand for those roles but if you had more of the leadership roles uh, more people engaging upstream 
you'd have less demand for those things. So we, we're, we're not addressing the root causes, which is causing a lot of issues, and now we're short of people to deal with those issues, and we're, we're struggling and driving this massive campaign to develop more of that talent set, but you could actually dramatically reduce the demand for that talent set if you address things upstream. And the analogy I always give is, imagine you're standing on the street and in front of you is a car factory, and you know, a body, you know, a metal goes in, gets stamped into body shells, and they bolt the engines and transmissions and all the, the various parts, goes through the entire assembly chain, and then you have your finished product, and then it gets pushed into a parking lot to be sold from the third floor. So it arrives in the parking lot, smash, it's all crunched to bits, and the people down there, oh, oh goodness, quick, move it aside, because there's more coming, falling off the, the assembly line from the third floor. And then they, okay, well, we, we need to fix these, we need to handle this flow of, of damaged cars, we need to create some workshops, we need to figure out what's wrong with them, uh, what parts do we need, what's the procedure, <clears throat> which tools do we need to do this, uh, there's so many different issues, we're stepping all over each other, let's create a methodology so that we can work on this, how to prioritize it, uh, quality management uh, framework or whatever, so that we make sure we do a good job, let's get some vendors in here to sell us better tools, let's get some consultants, uh, let's create uh, some standards that we can be audited against to, to do all this work. And, and that's the security industry. Uh, meanwhile, you're standing back and like, why don't you just make the cars come out the ground floor? And we're, we're looking for, you know, and it's becoming increasingly technical because you need these, you know, you got more advanced tooling and you got more, more and more complex procedures. And it's that tech talent, the, the people that can do those very specific things, they're incredibly difficult to find. And the irony, and I, I, this is why I have absolutely no problem finding uh, talent, great talent, uh, with my approach, is that I'll get, you know, a 10-year CISSP veteran security hardcore guy, 80 grand a year, I'll put him on the ground, and what he'll do is he'll make a run for the parking lot and start changing radiators and body panels. And I can get a 21-year-old kid at a university, and he turns around and looks at me and goes, why are we lobbing cars off the third floor? I say, Exactly. So if, if you make that approach more proactive, if you shift the security equation further up the value chain, you completely change the demographic of what skill set you actually need. And I think that's where security leadership comes in. So how do security leaders make the cars come out the ground floor? You have to influence. You have to influence your ass off. Um, because most, most of the time, we've, we've given ourselves a horrendous reputation, uh, and people don't want to put us in. You know, everyone's complaining, oh, we don't report to the board, blah, blah, blah. It's because no one wants to put us there, um, and, and it's because we've not proven ourselves there either. Uh, it's why you're always going to get stuck under a CIO. Um, you really, really have to influence. Uh, we've just created a really bad reputation for ourselves. I remember starting at my last role, head of information security, Introducing myself, one in three people, if not more, physically recoiled uh, when I presented myself as the head of information security. That's that's how bad our reputation is, and we create costs and we speak this language full of jargon and we expect everyone to understand us and we belittle users and we we moan about lack of resource and this and that. Um, really, we need to be there for the business. Uh, I engage, you know, every single person that wants a security exception. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Because I don't know you and I don't know what you're trying to do and I want to understand and I want to enable you. Uh, and you, you start shifting that relationship. You know, uh, board members, executives, they're people. Grab them, speak their language. It's, it's not easy, it's a language called English. Try, try speaking it instead of, you know, 
uh, people are amazed at how, oh, wow, you managed to explain seam or threat modeling to the board. It's like, yeah, because I told them it was a, this thingamajig that logs stuff from different sources, and then we can kind of look at the logs together and correlate and then conclude things out of that. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Or, or threat modeling. Oh, well, you take a step back and you just kind of look at it from different angles to see you know, if, if there's some weaknesses to it. Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. But you know, they're board speak. directors. We have to speak complicated words and make ourselves sound intelligent so that they think we're intelligent. Is that not how it works? I think they think we're idiots is, <laughs> is what they think. Um, and, and there's so much talk, and it's quite arrogant from the security side of, oh, we have to educate the board on risk. It's like, have you been near a board? Because risk is probably what they talk about. 66% of the time, you know, it's it's tremendously risk focused. You have an audit and risk committee. It, 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 everything they do is about risk. We're, we're just not quite talking the same risk and we're a little bit in our own bubble because we're thinking just, you know, IT, IT, IT. Uh, a perfect example is I, I tell people like, I'm not that concerned about zero days and they lose their flipping minds. But the same people have got like you know, 8,000 patches that they're missing, you know, critical ones. They're like, mm, really? Uh, you want to go spend uh, two million quid on tooling to to pick up uh, zero days, but you you're not concerned about the fact that ninety percent of your estate is unpatched. Um, yeah, but that's IT's job. Well, no, your your job is to protect the business and to to help it reach its goal. So that that is your job, uh, whether it is formally or not, it really is. So it's very important to just engage. And if you if you start thinking holistically and altruistically, and you you take the time to understand the business and what makes it tick so that you can actually speak about not security, but speak about the business and how you want to help it. Um, I think you'll find it's quite easy to strike up a conversation. And the other thing is the actual striking up the conversation. Well, we don't report to the board. They don't live there. There's no toilets in the boardroom. They need to leave sometimes. Honestly, they meet there maybe once a week, if that. Just grab them. They're human beings. If you've got something to say, if you've got a personality, if you know, learn, you know, learn some engagement skills, some some storytelling skills. You know, it's it's the same skills you need to pick up a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You know, just start a conversation, build rapport. Uh, don't be awkward. Um, it, it's fairly straightforward. You know, like the the last uh, role, uh, I just grabbed our, our chief chief executive after, after she gave her her annual address. It's like I, I like the speech. I like this. I, I thought you were quite witty here. I, I noticed you're quite keen and strategic on that point. I think you know you're reducing benefits here, and everyone's everyone's kind of down about it. But I think I see that as you really caring about the people, and you don't want to lay people off uh, just so they can have an extra coffee machine. Um, and she's like, "Yeah." And uh, I was like, "I'm trying to do some parallel stuff in security. Can I buy you a cup of coffee?" She's like, "No, I'll buy you a cup of coffee." So that all that stuff is is absolutely doable, and that's how you you, know, you have to get that traction. You have to be seen as someone who thinks on behalf of the business. Um, and cares, and they'll they'll listen to you. I think a, a big part of of what you know that senior management team they have so much to cover. Uh, they're they're desperate to find people that they can trust and delegate to. Uh, and I see a lot of security leaders spend an enormous amount of time on metrics, and you know security metrics are, are pulled out of thin air anyway. We, we have no idea what we know and what we don't know, and what the outside world is going to do. It's all it's all made up and highly biased anyway. If you just build a trusted relationship instead, you literally pop your head through the door, you tell them something, and they're like, okay, I get it. And I, I know you care. I know you wouldn't be asking if you didn't need it. I, I know you wouldn't be concerned if it wasn't legitimate. 
you know, you, you build that personal relationship of trust and that, that communication ability to, to change and pivot uh, is hugely amplified. And these, these are the, the more kind of human skills that I've been working towards just because I've took 20 years, but realized this is what works. This, this is the fastest way to go about reaching my overall goal of having holistic, consistent, and sustainable information security. So I would say for the last five years, people have been saying the same thing to me. You know, you have to understand the business and the really successful people I know, that's what they, they do. But why is it taking so long for everyone else to catch up? And how do they go learn this? If, if this really isn't you, if you, don't, if you don't understand how the business works or the board works, how can you do that? Well, you know, board, boards are well, relatively standard as a concept. Uh, I know like on Club CISO, for example, there's a lot of people taking like a, a non-executive director course, uh, which will give you a lot of insights. Um, but, you know, Google is your friend. Um, it, it, I was gonna say, it takes time because you're right. There's, there's really no place to, to learn this stuff. And I've been doing this, I'm turning 40, so I've been doing this for over 20 years. And it's only in the last few years uh, you know, up until maybe five years ago, I would have been quite intimidated just to go and talk to a CIO. Uh, and now, you know, last year I hired a kid. He was 21 years old. He started on Monday. On Thursday morning, I made a point to take him in the meeting with me with the CIO because I want him to realize this is the love. This is the kind of things that get discussed. This is how granular it is. This is how brief it is. Um, this is what matters. We talk strategically. You know, notice the tone of the conversation, and also realize we're just people. You know, don't don't uh, don't be afraid of it. So my my goal is to kind of get people that what it took me twenty years to achieve. I, I hope to get people there in you know five. Uh, I think I think anyone who's really really dedicated, really curious, eager to learn, can start in cyber today and be an above average security leader in five years time. Yeah, I think I think you really can, and that's one the wonderful thing about it as a career, how quickly you can move up. Yeah, and it, it's it's fantastically it's fantastically rewarding to to impart all that for me. Like the, the inspiration came to my kids because it was a, a problematic uh, situation post divorce and everything, and I, I really I had this drive to there's I don't get to spend enough time with you guys, and there's so much I want to impart on you, uh, and then it was kind of like well. Why, why am I limiting this to, to just my kids? Why don't, I do, why don't I do this with with everyone? Why don't I start caring about uh, everyone? Um, and that's that's my, my newest thing is is not even security leadership. It's just full stop leadership. It's just really absolutely massively caring about people. Um, and that's another thing that's got fantastic benefits because if if you absolutely love your people, if you make uh, their working environments. You, you get these cultural bubbles where you get everyone hates this company, but you get one team that absolutely loves working there, and it's it's because they have a, a fantastic manager, who's who's a good leader and protects them and helps them grow, uh, and gives them all the things they need and protects them from all the negativity in, in the organization. If you do that, the potential and rate of growth that you drive out of people is is mind-boggling. I mean, I, I see job ads where they want you know SOC analysts to have a minimum of five years. Uh, work experience. I mean, I'll hire guys who have never had a job, period. Uh, I hired one guy last year, kid really. Uh, his his only thing, only thing in his resume were his grades, and his grades were crap. Uh, but they were consistently crap, so I thought maybe this kid's just really, really bored. 
Um, there was actually a recruiter that gave him to me for free because he's like, I, I can't place this guy anywhere. Nobody wants this. Um, and long story short, he was uh, he was a cocky little sod, but uh, fantastic, uh, extremely motivated, self learning. We just gave him the right environment, and I think nine months later, uh, BT gave him double his salary to head up a sock. You know, wow. so this this is this is the rate of growth that's possible if you create the right environment for people, and and obviously the, you know, the input per head is high. You don't have to pay people astronomical salaries to retain them because they're they're actually happy doing what they where they're at and they they enjoy that growth and they understand the longer I stay here the the higher the long term payoff. Um, so there's there's so many things you can do, and I just gave a leadership course last week. And I think that the really important thing is even if you're far down the organization, if if you do that, if you demonstrate that kind of leadership and growth and care for the organization's mission and the people, and people have fantastic things to say about you. Um, that those are the kinds of traits that senior management teams look for. So if you challenge yourself to develop them, even if it's just in your little team of three or four or five people, that's going to get noticed and that's going to get you traction. And that, that traction is so much more important than title or status or authority because uh, that, that's what allows you to, to be seen in such a good way and to, to become someone worth listening to is the... Uh, the, the phrase I use, by that senior management team. And that's when you start really being able to provide the resource, being able to implement your vision uh, to get what your team needs uh, and all that stuff. That's that's my view on that. So with that CV issue, because I think those, those things are great and I think we do need more diversity and we do need to look beyond, you know, five years for a, a sock or whatever else but if you are a company if you are a hiring manager or your hr you probably have to set a, a level somewhere so that you know what you're looking for and not everybody has the the foresight to kind of look for somebody and, and see past you know a bad cv so i don't know the answer how do you how do you change that mentality because otherwise you could spend a lot of time meeting a lot of people that have no relevance to the job whatsoever well, th- th- honestly, most roles, most roles, I mean, a-, a candidate will either be established or they won't. And and some of the more senior roles, yeah, you're probably going to want an established candidate. Uh, I think people tremendously overestimate how much time it takes to bring a candidate up to speed. Uh, and I think this is part of a of business culture. It's It's shockingly bad. When I see HR departments impose, oh, you have to have an annual one, or uh, a monthly one-to-one meeting with your employee, it's like, why? It's, oh, well, because we want managers to have interaction with their employee. Like, you're telling me you have managers that don't interact with their employee in a month? Uh, you know, pre-COVID, I'm every 45 minutes, I'm having a chat with my guys. I insist on sitting next to them. We're sitting on each other's desk. We're talking uh, constantly. You know, they're doing a task. I give them an anecdote or some experience. Or, by the way, I always look out for these things. Let me share you a cool story with you. Uh, by the way, when you do this, think of the bigger picture of how this thing's constantly communicating. Uh, so I think this it's this manager culture is, is just horrendous. So that's one thing that we, we need to get rid of. Um, I don't even really look at CVs. Um, and I, I don't really see this skills gap, especially in the more junior roles. I literally post something on LinkedIn and, and you get people applying and you can Looking at someone's LinkedIn activity is probably a better uh, indicator of their performance and, and attitude and aptitude than their resume is. Um, not everyone's great at building resumes. 
people put in what they think you want to hear, and it may not be what you want to hear. I, I think we, we just have a, a general over-reliance on this HR process and resumes, uh, and we really need to make this more human. Uh, I just, I, I, like, I don't understand how you see jobs where the hiring manager clearly had absolutely no input, like HR just created a cyber role that they understand absolutely nothing about. Uh, and then everyone's moaning that they can't find candidates, but I'm sorry, H, you know, uh, hiring manager, why aren't you getting involved? Why aren't you writing the job spec? Why aren't you, you know, sometimes I find a candidate and HR is like, no, he doesn't tick the boxes and I will drag them kicking and screaming. Um, through the HR process, there was one point where I was I was literally staging a sit-in in the HR office because they were they were killing me with process and I couldn't get the candidates I wanted. Uh, I may have been so fuming I almost threw a chair through a window. But eventually, <laughs> as long we as got... you didn't throw it, then that's fine. I, I did, I did, no, I did not. But while I was sitting in there, there were many thoughts going through my mind. Uh, <laughs> and, and this this was still in an early period at at that employer. And I was still like just absolute massive positive engagement. I was really trying to understand what everybody did. I was really, really upbeat about the whole thing. But the HR process, it, it made me absolutely furious. And I think part of why what upsets me so much about these bad HR processes is it's human resources. You're, you're dealing with human beings and you're not considering them in a human way whatsoever. And that, that really upsets me because people really, really matter. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, you, you want to handle our pension benefits and our payroll and that kind of stuff, great. But if you want to call yourself human resources, you, you need to start treating people like human beings. Um, and I, I think this is an essential leadership skill. This is what, like, this is what every manager should, should know and understand. And sometimes I see... You know, I, I see managers complain, well, sorry, I can't hire you because our HR process won't allow it or this and that. Fight, fight. You know, you, you've chosen this person. You like this person. You know this person can do the job and you're just going to let them go because some process is in the way. No, you, you fight for your people. Um, so I think, I think that needs to be overcome. Like I've, I've not even looked at, my, res at my, uh, my people's resumes. or The resume takes very, has very, very little weight in the overall decision. I want to know what someone's attitude and aptitude is. I've been doing this for 22 years. Uh, I'd like to say I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do. Um, I cannot get through an HR department to save my life. This I makes no sense to me. I and cannot. I've worked in only two HR departments, but in both of those, you know, I didn't have the ultimate power. It was the, the line managers that really did. You know, if they wanted something, they could come and get it. And I don't, and it was a while ago. So, you know, I just don't understand how all of these processes have come up. And we all know these tools don't help us. I don't understand who all these companies are that are, you know, not looking beyond that. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, it's, it's done differently in different places. But I, I do feel, maybe it's because I just got out of higher education, but I, like, I literally feel for every person trying to do work, there's 10 trying to come up with process and bureaucracy, where 90% where of your department is just there to support itself, to give itself work to do. Um, it, it's quite, quite bad. But I, I with my profile, uh, and again, I, th I think I'm pretty good at what I do. Uh, the reviews and the feedbacks and the people I have worked for uh, seem to indicate as much. But Again, I, I can't make it through an ATS filter. I can't make it past uh, any kind of HR filtering. I remember I had one, uh, I had an interview 
about two years ago uh, for a head of role for a company. And the, the CTO there, he came from Jaguar Land Rover. And uh, it was a great interview. The guy was all smiles. Uh, he was like, I, I've never had such an enjoyable conversation with a security person before. You know, it's normally so dull and boring and blah, blah, blah. This is, this is fantastic. And then about 10 minutes from the end, his smile just disappeared. Uh, and I asked him, what's, what's your concern? Like, I just noticed, you know, in a facial expression. And he's like, I just, I just don't see you working here. Because it, it was a startup, it was about 400 people. He's like, you, you should be group CISO at, at JLR, where I come from. Like, you know, I just don't see you, you know, ever being happy in an organization this size with, with what you can contribute. Uh, and it, so therefore, it, it didn't proceed. The funny thing is, uh, JLR uh, had an opening for a CISO a few weeks later, and I applied for it. Um, and I applied on, for it on LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, when you get the um, when when they access your resume, you get a notification. So I got the notification. Oh, JLR has accessed your resume. Uh, six minutes later, I got the after careful consideration email. Um, and actually, I actually did a post about it on LinkedIn. It got over half a million views, and it got me on the on David Sparks uh, podcast. And that that episode was actually the the highest ranked, most listened to episode of the CISO vendor relationship podcast. And it just goes to show like, just how many people are, are fed up with the way they're treated with HR. You, you do a post on LinkedIn about HR, it gets massive traction. Everyone's fed up. Everybody hates it. It's, it's horrendous. I, I really just think we need to humanize that process. Now, I think the only antidote we have, apart from changing how HR work, is networking. If Exactly. Exactly. It has to be like if when everyone asks me for career tips, the number one thing I say is go network and meet people, access that so-called hidden job market that where the adverts aren't posted, bypass the ATS, go to the people that have the influence. So, but we're largely still stuck at home. If if not stuck at home, there's no you know large event. So how can people do that this year? Do you think? I think I'm going to be like uh, Gary V and just say LinkedIn. Use LinkedIn like like mad. Um, you know, I, get, I came to the UK two years ago, um, lost my job at Capita, and I was, average, I was your average LinkedIn user. I had maybe, I don't know, 800 connections on there, uh, new to the market, nothing. Uh, and, and I didn't post anything. I didn't create any content. I didn't do anything. And I, I just started, uh, I started writing it. I wrote an article, but it got like zero views or two views or something in a month. But uh, I decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a whole series on all, all my thoughts. Because I was, I was honestly so down that I was like, I'm just, this is hopeless. No one will employ me. If they do employ me, they fire me for doing my job too well. Uh, it was out of, I'd like to say it was out of this massive, great positive initiative. Oh, I'm going to go get it. No, it was, it was literally, I'm, I'm going to die in a ditch. Um, so at the very least, um, I'd like to kind of leave some of my insights behind. Uh, so I started writing... I wrote an article, and the next day I wrote an article, another article, and then a couple of days later I wrote another one. And so two views, five views, ten views. I started doing the odd post, and then after you know six months, I was like, well, maybe I should do a video. Uh, and you know, in two years, I've gone from about eight hundred connections to just about just shy of fourteen thousand now. Uh, so it, it matters, and it's not just about you know getting that number of connections; it's about actually putting content out about people knowing what you're about. Um, you know, I even published a book earlier this year, so that you know that adds that that author badge. Um, you know, public speaking. If if you get a public speaking active uh, opportunity, use it. You know, um, it's not as much fun now because it's not live. Um, 
but absolutely. Um, and now I, I try to do some paid speaking, but most of it's for free just because it gets you gets you exposure. But I'd say really, really, if you're not working, spend all your time building up that LinkedIn network. If, if you are working, spend at least a couple of hours a week anyway. You've got to build it up because it will become your safety net. Um, even if it doesn't look it, it, it takes time. Um, and even if it doesn't look it, uh, it, it can come back to you. Like I, I preach a lot about like altruism uh, and sometimes it feels like you're, you're giving a lot away. Like I get loads of people contact me asking me for advice and this and I, I try to always take the time to, um, to get back to them and help them. And you feel like you're giving so much away and you're not really getting anything back for it. Uh, it's not until you need help that you'll see that. Because the, the people you're giving to, because you're giving to them and everyone, they think, well, this guy's got it made. You know, he's helping everyone. He's doing so well. He's got all this publicity. He's doing all these speaking engagements. He's got a book out, blah, blah, blah. People think your life is fantastic. And then you do a post that, guys, uh, my job fell through. I gave my notice. I'm on my ass. And then you've got 500 people comment on that, on that post and refer you to every recruiter and you know, got internal recruiters hear about you because the post is circulating so well. Uh, it's it's your lifeline. You, you have to do it. I think one of the I haven't written an article in a while now, but the last one was I gave a talk about getting into cyber, and a lot of the younger people in the audience didn't chime up, so I didn't get to address their concerns. But I, I spoke to them afterwards, and the next morning I wrote an article. I was like, these are the things I wish uh, I'd said to the people trying to start out or trying to pivot into infosec, and it, it's mostly about network your ass off. You really need to do it. You need to develop a brand. You need to develop a following. You need people to know you. Because uh, if, you know, you can be 22 years old or whatever, uh, not really have any experience, just being chatty and asking questions and expressing your views, that makes me notice you. So the next time I need a junior analyst, you're going to be the first one I, I tap. I'm not going to go to some recruiter. Why would I do, do that when I can see someone on my LinkedIn network? So absolutely network. And I think LinkedIn right now is the greatest tool for doing that. And I love to hear that you try and go back and respond to people because when I tell people trying to come in to go ask for help, ask for advice, they're like, I, I can't do that. That you know, it's too awkward. I don't want to reach out and message people. I'm sure. I'm sure most people don't, and and I'm constantly told that I give too much of myself away. But you know, uh, I, I enjoy helping people. It doesn't pay the bills, but it's uh, it's rewarding. So let's talk about something something different. So. Please. Do you, do, do you think vendors have had their money's worth out of talking about COVID security risks yet? Jesus. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that the vendors will ever have enough money. Um, I, I do feel like it's been done to death. Um, yes, there are abs absolutely some new concerns. Are they, are they significant? Does it like radically change the threat landscape? I don't think so. Uh, I think for 90% of organizations, if you had, um, you know, if you had homeworking before and you had good policies and tooling and process and that kind of stuff, then you just scaled that up and it was fairly straightforward. Like they, you, you couldn't manage your endpoints off the network before. Well, that's not really a COVID issue. That's you just not having good asset management or configuration management of your assets. Um, and again, I think the solution to these things is, you know, I think the biggest issue I hear is 
we can't manage remote asset, assets. I think that's the biggest complaint I've gotten. And you know, this is oh well, you have you have to beware of all these new threats because you've got all these assets out there that aren't being managed anymore, and blah blah blah. I was like, well, how about we keep the same level of detect and response capability, but we just manage the endpoints like we did on-prem. Uh, so look more at the IT solution. So at the university, we we just went out and got Tanium. And this is something, you know, it was was telling you guys a year ago that we really need to be able to manage our, our, um, our assets off-prem because we've got loads of people working remotely. We've got loads of people all over and campuses and traveling and and teaching and just all over the place. So we need some way of managing these these assets off the network as well. That was never done before. Uh, and COVID was just kind of the tipping point. It was like, they just now it, it rang home like, ooh, yeah, now it's not like a, a 500 assets, it's now 5,000 assets. Time time to, to pull that trigger. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I don't think the threat landscape has changed that much. Yes, people use COVID as, you know, the phishing subject, but they used, you know, Nigerian prints or, or your pension before that. So I don't think it's changed that much, to be honest. I don't think the fundamentals of information security have changed in 20 years, despite the uh, the you know, ever faster evolving threat landscape, blah, blah, blah. So you're still not doing asset management right. You're still not patching. You're still not provisioning properly. You're still not managing your configurations. You're still not doing, uh, you know, code reviews. You still don't have architectural standards. This is what's getting your butt handed to you. So what do you think vendors should know or take into consideration when they're going out to market? Because I hear a lot of a lot of and growing number of CISO complaints. I um, I recently listened to you speaking to um, risk ledger. Is it Hayden? Hayden? Is it Brooks? Yes. Love Hayden. Yes. Yeah, I love Hayden as well. Um, And he, he was mentioning, gosh, what was he mentioning? Um, I forgot where I was going with this, to be honest. <laughs> but one thing I've, I've noticed, it's, it's such a saturated market. Uh, gosh, what the hell was I thinking about with Hayden? It's such a saturated. Oh, no, he was, he was saying that all these vendors, um, like they, because he was talking about like the startup thing, and they just hire like a big sales team and they just start you know, absolutely pummeling everything, everyone. And they, they're telling everyone that whatever your problem is, or they're telling people what their problem is and how they're, you know, this is the solution that solves it. And I'm like 99% of the time, I'm like, no, that, that's not my problem. But don't you have, yeah, I have that, but it's because of this underlying problem, so I'm addressing this problem. But, 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 but what do you mean address the underlying problem? Just, just buy our product. Um, and usually, you know, the salespeople don't really understand the solution. They don't understand how they work. They don't understand what creates um, the issues we experience. Uh, in fact, most security people don't even understand the, the root causes to most of the issues we experience. Uh, and it's just a lot of it's snake oil. A lot of it is relatively basic stuff. Um, with you know, the, 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 it's basically the graphical user interface is, is what's changing. Um, so many of them, they create concepts and frameworks and this kind of thing just to justify their own existence. Um, what I'd like to see from a vendor is, um, I, I want to see what the, what the company stands for. So for example, last year I met the founder and CEO of, uh, Cyber Reason. Uh, 
I'd never used Cyber Reason. I'd never seen a demo. I'd never seen any of that. But talking to this guy, and Lior is his name, I left that dinner thinking, I just about bet my life that this is the best EDR on the market just by knowing the person behind it because they know their stuff and they really care. Um, and then I finally did get a pitch from Cyber Reason. And I was actually disappointed because I think the product is amazing. But the marketing pitch, it's all like, oh, it's got to look cool and cybery and hooded hackery and all this stuff. It's like, no, just, just tell me what it does and how it works. And I will take that information. And when I have a need, then I know this is the product for me. Uh, I, think, I think the marketing, you know, we're hyping stuff to death. We, we don't even know what we're buying. We're, we're buying a brochure. But I don't want to buy a brochure. I want to buy a tool that actually delivers some value. Um, so I think we we need to stop. Yeah, I think I think you, you need to start treating a lot of CISOs with more respect and just explain what you do. And if your sales team doesn't even understand how your own product works, you're you're not going to be doing that. Uh, flip side of the coin is I see a worrisome amount of services that what they do is they advise CIOs and CISOs on what they should be doing which tells me there's a lot of CIOs and CISOs out there who maybe shouldn't have the job they have because you really should know. Um, but ultimately, yeah, what I want from a vendor is just tell me what it does and how it works um, and, and take the time to listen to my issues. Don't just assume your product does it. Um, and you'll find that you, you weed out a lot like that. Um, this is the issue. The, the market is incredibly oversaturated. There are so many solutions. There are so many acquisitions. You you get a startup, you put a cyber badge on it, and immediately the venture capitalists come in, pump in twenty million, uh, and then you know some telco acquires it, and then they spin it off on a different brand. And it's it's just there's so much money going on. Um, I think someone I forget who it was, but they they describe most cybersecurity companies as marketing departments that spend you know with with a tech product. Um, it's it's literally more marketing. You know, Companies will spend 10 times more on marketing than they'll, they'll spend on development. And I, I don't want that. I want you to build me the best product I can get and then make it known to me how it works and then I'll come and buy it. I've, I've never purchased something from being approached by people. I, every purchase I've ever made, I've gone to them. Which is the easiest sale in the world, which is how you get like 80 plus percent discounts. <laughs> Guys, I want, this, I, want, I want this product. Don't dick me around. This is the easiest sales job ever. Uh, I can literally hang up the phone, you get no sale, or you give me 80% discount, we, we do this. And I'll give you referrals and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, sure enough. I mean, I've, I've pulled in sales from last year, 460K in for 23. Another one now for, I think, 800K for less than 150. Um, you know, it, it's all possible if you know what you're, what you're after. Uh, and yeah, they just need to communicate better. But How did those I, I, products I, get on your radar? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, you could definitely do, you, you need some marketing. You, you need, you know, I need to be aware of those. Uh, so one of them, they actually approached, uh, they approached me because they said they liked my content uh, and they did want to do like a little uh, recording together. Um, another one, I'd actually worked with a product that I quite liked, uh, which I didn't know at the time had been created by the, the same founders as, as this new product. Um, and I, I just I saw them at an event, and I was like, you know what, this this is actually interesting. Uh, and I, I reached out to them, and 
I, th I think what I said was, hi, I need endpoint management for about 5,000 endpoints. And then I sent him a second message saying, by the way, that number is also my budget. Uh, and they didn't say no. So we had a few conversations and uh, so, some additional conditions were put on the deal, but we, uh, we got a deal. So um, yeah, and I think this is, this is the power of, of networking as well. Uh, this is stuff that doesn't benefit you directly. Uh, you might get the, the odd free beer or dinner out of it, um, but you can secure tremendous discounts for your organization. And this is another thing that, that organizations don't see. It's like, oh, well, we'll hire this other CISO because his salary demands are 10K a, a year less. It's like, yeah, but he's going to run a, a reactive security organization that's going to cost you three times as much as a proactive approach. And you're going to spend an extra $2 million a year on procurement alone. So is, is getting the cheap CISO really uh, the better option here? Uh, but unfortunately, that's, that's, these are value calculations that aren't taken into account in the hiring process. Now, I think we could keep talking for the rest of the morning, but... Um, I'm free. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well let's... Uh, we end each podcast with uh, 10 quick-fire questions. So if you've listened to the Hayden episode, then you know what those are. Um, I, 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 I was running around the house, as I, but yeah, I did, I did catch that. <laughs> Go on. All right. So let's start. What turns you on professionally? Um, right now, it's, it's it's leadership people, it's developing people, it's uh, it's overcoming challenges. What turns you off professionally? Close-mindedness. Uh, yeah, just doing things the old-fashioned. A lack of thought, a lot of lack of care. How do you unwind? Um, I have a, a slight car addiction. A slight? Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I have. I have a. Um, I have a spare car that I get about five to eight hundred miles out of the set of tires on it because I drive it around like an absolute maniac. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to try? I've I've always wanted to go into automotive. In fact, the the kind of my curious nature and want to understand things. Uh, I've I've owned some really nice uh, kind of exotic cars in the past, and just getting on car forums, I kind of became the authority to the point where I've had car factories, like the actual manufacturer contact me. Uh, a couple of years ago, like Lamborghini called me, he's like, we have a problem with the customer car and we hear you're really good at diagnosing these things. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I would have loved to go into that as kind of a, an automotive consultant. Uh, for a few years, I actually had people on forums like fly me over to, to Switzerland and other places to maintain their cars because the, the dealers couldn't do it because they they wouldn't see these these problems often enough and they hadn't been trained and they hadn't gotten the service bulletin as to how to, to handle this particular problem. So they would actually call me to kind of think through what was wrong with the car and figuring out what was causing it. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, absolute petrol head. <laughs> what activity gives you the most energy? Definitely uh, working uh, on and driving my cars. Sorry, boring. <laughs> Who is your biggest inspiration? Who's my biggest inspiration? Uh, I've got a few. There's a few like really good uh, motivational speakers out there. Um, I, lo I love Les Brown. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's great. And uh, I think Simon Sinek has, has fantastic inputs. Everyone should watch their videos. Um, to me, like the, the Schwarzenegger and the, the Les Brown, they'll get you really motivated. And the Simon Sinek stuff will get you really thinking. So I highly encourage that to everyone.
If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Care. You are at your best when you're doing what? I'm going to give Hayden's problem, uh, Hayden's answer, solving problems. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? It's, it's going to be a, a similar, similar thing. Uh, just, just genuinely care because it will make others care. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? I hope he's a car fan because he did, I'd have many exploits. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it's. I think it's. Um, it's. It's. Yeah. And I, I'm going to keep the same thing. I'm. I'm just. I know. I'm. I'm extremely passionate about it, and I'm. I'm monotonous about it. But it's. It's really about caring. Uh, I, I started my career out as a, a cocky little shit. You might have to beep that out. I don't know. Um, and now it's. It's transformed. Because I, I, I know what, what has value and I, I know what, what gives me satisfaction. And, and yeah, caring and doing the right thing, uh, that kind of broader justice and, and leaving things better than, than you found them. Now, there's one question that I really have been wanting to ask. When you were a teenage hacker, did you wear a hoodie and sit in a dark room? I did not. I did not. Uh, my bedroom was in an attic, but it was still fairly well lit. It's disappointing. Yeah, yeah. The, computers, the, the computers were all white back then as well. Yeah, it's was, uh, it was, it was fairly, uh, yeah, very disappointing. Apology. Well, thank you so Pops. much. You never see Coca Puffs in the hacker ads. I don't know what's going on with that, but uh... <laughs> they just need better breakfast cereal. Is that what it is in those ads? I think that's what that's what it is. I think that's that's what lead, feeds those uh, those hacker tendencies. It's <laughs> it, it's Kellogg's. That's what it is. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and chatting with me today. Um, there's so much stuff in there that's, you know, a little bit different from what everyone else is saying, but really, really valuable, I think. Thank you. Thanks so much for, for having me. And I think, uh, again, uh, a good example of, of the importance for everyone out there wanting to succeed in this area to, to network, uh, because we wouldn't be talking if it wasn't for that networking. So really want to encourage everyone to do that. And uh, best of luck to everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.